when you meditate, always try and be hopeful. It's very important. It's necessary to realize the infinite possibilities that life offers you at any moment. Most people are engaged in a limited dharma. They are traversing in a given lifetime through a sequence of possible events, but the events are not too widely chartered in the sense that the possible variations within that sequence are, are limited. Meditation offers us the prospect of changing that. The suggestion is that instead of staying with the destiny that you have now, that you've incurred through previous karmas, actions in this life and other lives, family, uh, social position, economic or religious background, racial background, it's possible to transcend all of that and within the structure of a lifetime to be born again many times. The Tibetan doctrines are far-reaching. They're really very similar in essence, I think, to the doctrines of yoga, Buddhism of different types, Taoism, uh, the very early American Indian religions. There seems to be a common thread that unites them all, which is the perception of that which is truth. The Tibetan versions, with an S, of paradise are many. The Tibetan mysticism is a mixture of many forms of uh, Tantra, of the Bon religion, of Buddhism, of course, as brought in by Padmasambhava. Naturally, there have been very well-known Tibetan teachers and gurus, of course, all of the Dalai Lamas, and Tibet's most famous teacher, Milarapa, and his guru, Marpa, the translator. The texts that have been brought to life in the West, particularly since the Chinese occupation of Tibet, are rather obscure. Uh, these are ancient books, <clears throat> the Tantras, which were written thousands of years ago, depicting ways of attaining superpowers, realizing truth, ascending into higher spheres of consciousness and things like that. The knowledge of what occurred in Tibet, of course, was very limited in the spiritual sense in the West, primarily to uh, Evans Wentz, uh, went to Tibet and, of course, began writing his books and a few other adventurous souls who journeyed into an unknown land and studied its religion and culture as foreigners, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, as best they could. Naturally, it was impossible for them to penetrate uh, the, the deeper inner circles of Tibetan mysticism. In many cases, fortune brought them to a distinguished teacher or a lama, someone perhaps who is somewhat enlightened. But the 
true secret oral teachings of Tibet have been handed down uh, orally, meaning not so much that they've been transmitted in words, but they've been transmitted from teacher to student in an unbroken chain for thousands of years. And of course, tradition is not totally necessary. Any individual is capable of realizing the truth at any time. And when they do that, no tradition is necessary, no chain, no lineage. Once you have realized the truth, once you've become consciousness itself, then you go beyond all such distinctions of lineage and teachers and things like that. That happens infrequently. Most people seem to have a teacher or a series of teachers who impart to them not so much a verbal message, an explanation, although that's done certainly, but the essence of existence, the truth, which is transmitted, of course, through the Kundalini from teacher to student, and the very rigorous training process that anyone must go through, either with a teacher or on their own, in order to uh, develop the superpowers and enter into the superconscious states of samadhi. Uh, the teacher would, the guru, of course, would oversee this training process. So the essence of the Tibetan knowledge, then, as it's come out, uh, which it has only partially, has come either through the text, the tantras, uh, things like the Tibetan Book of the Dead and things like that, or through a very small number of Tibetans uh, who, of course, left Tibet with the Chinese occupation and decided to present some of the teachings to the world. The idea inherent in much, but not, of course, all of Tibetan Buddhism is that the teachings are secret, not in the sense that you can't tell someone, but in the sense that they won't understand. We find a parallel to this, of course, in the stories of Carlos Castaneda and his teacher Don Juan, where Don Juan, in Tales of Power, presents Carlos with a, a piece of wisdom called the Saucerer's Explanation, which is an understanding of how consciousness and reality works. And he holds off for many years. Uh, it's only about a six-line explanation, at most a paragraph or two. And he doesn't tell Carlos for many years, not because there was anything secret that needed to be withheld, but because Carlos wasn't at a sufficiently high enough level of evolutionary consciousness to understand the import of what was being expressed. You can hear the words, but that doesn't mean you understand them. You understand what the words mean in conventional usage, as they would be defined in a dictionary, as you've been taught by uh, culture the meanings associated with them, the ideas and the themes. But when you deal with explanations of consciousness, it's necessary to have much more. Otherwise, it's like trying to explain the mixing of various colors to a person that's blind. If they haven't perceived the colors initially, certainly the refined mixing of them to produce various shades and hues is going to be uh, impossible to comprehend, only because of their lack of sight. So if a person doesn't have a developed inner sight or inner vision, then it will be literally impossible for them to understand what on the surface seems like a very simple explanation of the way life works. So the secret doctrines, essentially, uh, are that. They're not necessarily secret in the sense that they're not told, although that was the way for thousands of years. 
but rather the idea was that simply they could only be understood by a class of evolved beings. And as in the Bible they say, well, don't cast your pearls before swine. The Bible is always graphic. In the same sense, the idea was it's silly to waste knowledge on people who will not benefit from it. Now, the danger of this idea, of course, is elitism, which really runs counter to everything in self-discovery. And quite a lot of that evolved in the Tibetan practices, a sense of uh, superiority that somehow because you had developed a certain power, uh, you had knowledge of a certain secret book, uh, you had reached a certain plateau of consciousness that you were in some way better than someone else. And of course, this has nothing to do with advanced self-discovery or the advanced practices of mysticism. Mysticism is an eclectic mixture of various forms of self-discovery that's primarily experiential. So when we speak of mysticism, rather than a philosophical understanding of a higher truth, we're speaking of someone who is more involved with direct meditative experience where they're perceiving truth, they're having visions, moving into other stratas of awareness. And the way that is done is rather specific, and that's what we'll be talking a little bit about tonight. I suppose a subtitle for the evening might be How to Have a Mystical Experience or to realize that all experiences are. The Tibetan forms, of course, move in many directions. The overlying theme is uh, enlightenment. But there are many variations, things that are perhaps outlawed in certain forms of self-discovery and certain forms of Tibetan Buddhism are embraced. So it's a very eclectic method of self-discovery yet it has its own etiquette as to all branches of self-discovery, its own special language. And certainly in one evening it's not my uh, intention to delve all that heavily into the language. There are many books now available on Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, in the beginning there was just Alexandra David Neal and W.Y. Evans Wentz's books, but now there are many, many written by the Lamas themselves. Of course it's important to note that because someone is a Lama or is part of a monistic order, uh, or claims to be part of a succession, that doesn't really mean they know anything. Any more than uh, someone who is perhaps a minister or a priest or whatever uh, doesn't necessarily claim to have an absolute knowledge. You have to always examine the individual's consciousness, their ability to transmit light in the higher spheres, that's the only criteria. And of course, I always feel that all spiritual knowledge can be understood very easily. That is to say, it's easy to understand if someone possesses it by how they treat others. Because it has to reflect not simply in gestures in front of the public or one's students, but in every aspect of your life. If it's genuine, if it's an integrated realization. So our theme then is uh, kind of the wit and wisdom of Tibet. There was quite a bit of wit. But not so much in a backward glance, but in the sense that the same truths are operable now. The same realities still exist. So we'll be talking about death, in other words.
essentially tonight. So it should be a good night, at least from my point of view. So the following is the truth. Within silence, all things are contained. What appears to our eyes to be life is but a thin curtain, a gauze penumbra. which stiltifies our vision, which prevents us from seeing the truth. The truth is that life is eternal, that eternity is life. What we call life is an acknowledgement of a succession of births of awareness. Time does not really exist as we know it, Rather, it's a transfiguration of a concept in which mortality or mutability is conditioned. The mind is empty. Nothing really is as it appears to be. So the essence of timelessness is the center of things. To reach the center of things, that place which is, while not geographically loaded, located anywhere, or perhaps is everywhere, and yet is timeless, which we call nirvana. Nirvana is limitless awareness, without a field, without a knower. A body of light. To sense that we are not physical nor mental, that we do not really have a history or a place that we're going to, that all of the universes are but phantoms, mirages, and while they have their own essence, their own pantomime, like the, the dumb shows, like the, the pantomimes in the 18th century in, in England, and of course in the mystery plays, they, they pass, forgotten. Nothing is as it appears to be. We open our eyes, we look at life, the world, uh, the seasons, the earth, the peoples, and everything seems to be solid. Everything seems to have its own eternality. Or we see that it's mutable, that everything changes and transforms. Everything goes through the cycle of birth, growth, maturation, decay, and death. But all this is an illusion. Everything we see is an illusion. Even our perceptions of truth are illusory. Illusory in the sense that they're not complete. When we silence the mind in meditation, when there's no thought, no image, no pictures, no memories, no desires, no sense of a self that is in any way participating in an experiential, ongoing life. We reach a plateau of awareness that is beyond creation, transformation, <clears throat> and destruction, that's beyond birth and death. 
that awareness is within all things. It is all things. Everyone is at the movies. You walk through the streets of the town, there's no one there. No matter where you look, the streets are empty. All the theaters are full. Houses empty, cars. Yet somehow the town seems to go on by itself. The lights come on at night. Just the wind blowing some old newspapers down the street. No one is there. You venture into one of the theaters all along the main street, and everyone is watching a movie. They're all happily watching a comedy. They're laughing and having a wonderful time, eating popcorn, sharing raisinets with a friend. You walk inside and no one sees you, no matter where you go. You even, for a while, get frustrated because you try and talk to people. You walk up and say, excuse me, sir, no reaction. Ma'am, uh, nothing. So you walk up on, this, on the little stage in front of the screen for a minute just to try and get someone's attention because you don't understand why there's no one on the streets. And you stand there and still nothing. But if you jump and shout long enough and get in the way of the film, somebody will throw something at you. Then it's wise to leave quickly and try another theater. So you leave the theater and go to another one. In the next theater, it's a love story. All the couples are sitting there, or as in this age, the triples. <laughs> arm in arm, or foot in mouth, or whatever it may be. <laughs> And they're looking at this wonderful love story. And they're all in love with love. And you walk up to one of them and you say, excuse me, I hate, I hate to disturb you. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Everybody's in the rhapsody of, of the movie. So you leave that there. And you go down to the next theater and there's a war movie on. John Wayne is still fighting out there. And everybody's engaged. Things are blowing up. Bodies flying everywhere, and no one hears you. Well, all that's left is a, a tragedy of another kind. And so you walk into that, the drama, suspense, sadness. And again, no one hears you. Well, you've, you've, you've seen it. You've been to the comedies, everyone laughs, the love stories, the wars, and the tragedies. And no one saw you, so you go back out to the street, and you just walk, and there's no one there. Everyone in this world is watching a movie, and the movie is their life. And if you have reached a state of vacancy, of awareness, you walk as if through deserted streets. You really have no choice in this. It's predestined. And when the hour comes, you become aware, you become conscious. Until then, you've been watching a movie. Until suddenly you find yourself out in the street walking, or going from theater to theater trying to, to have contact. But everyone is so engrossed of the film of their life, whether it's a comedy, a romance, a tragedy, a war. Everyone's so caught up that they've forgotten that they're watching a film. It's just a movie. It's just a show.
Awareness is wakefulness. Wakefulness is consciousness. Consciousness is limitless awareness. Not being caught up. Oh, you yourself, as you're walking down the street, might sit down for a few minutes and watch the show with everybody. It might be a good show. But you won't stay. You can get up from the show and leave. They all stay there. They see the same film over and over and over, life after life. Oh, in some lifetimes it changes. It's a war film. It's a romance. It's a tragedy. Political drama. But you notice after a while that the people, if you look at them, they seem very worn. Their expressions, they're not happy. Now, in their mind, of course, they're having a wonderful time. You see the expressions, the facial changes, sadness, when something sad is happening in the film, happiness, depression, grief at the death of a loved one. But the awareness is so limited. So it seems to one who has begun the journey beyond illusion. Now, of course, for one who's enlightened, the streets are always full. And the movie theaters are always empty. And that's why enlightened people go to the movies. The streets are packed. Everywhere you go, you see people. The development of mystical powers. Mystical powers develop primarily through the raising of the kundalini. The kundalini, as you probably know, is a type of energy that exists within all things. And it's possible to pull that energy, to mass it, to transmit it, the kundalini is the operable energy in anything that occurs, whether it's the movement of a hand, driving a car, the function of memory, creating ideas, activating emotions. It's the energy behind all things. It exists not in this physical plane, but in a plane of consciousness that is next to the physical, which we call the subtle physical, which you can see when you've developed, of course, your subtle physical vision or also known as the astral plane. The kundalini energy passes through the <clears throat> shashimna, which is a Sanskrit name, of course, for an astral nerve channel that runs along the spinal column. Just as we have a physical body, so we have an etheric body or an etheric double. And the etheric body is made up of... Uh, energy of light, but it has a structure in the same sense that our physical body has a structure. The kundalini is raised or brought down. It can be done in several different ways. And as it moves to the different chakras or energy centers in the subtle physical body, it endows one with various powers. There are many powers. The most notable, of course, are uh, healing, levitation, the ability to see the future or the past at will, be it the immediate future or past or the distant future or past, 
uh, to project the etheric double. The second body can be sent uh, to pick up your dry cleaning. shop for you, things like that, if you're very advanced. Uh, the development of the tumo, or the, the heat, um, many of the great Tibetan yogis, of course, could generate tremendous heat, which saved terrifically on heating bills. And it's still quite useful in the Sierras. It is. When I go out to the desert, all my friends freeze, and I walk around in a t-shirt. When you use the tumo, you you just produce a tremendous amount of heat, and you simply don't feel cold. You can even project that heat to others. The ability to uh, do a kind of a gate of power, uh, there's a walk that many of the Tibetan yogis developed, whereby they could travel at tremendous speeds uh, for long periods of time, cover hundreds and hundreds of miles in a day. And many other powers, of course. The usage of the powers is something that fascinates us. I suppose simply because it seems novel, or maybe some of us remember having done it before. Naturally, the traditional advice on the subject is uh, don't cultivate powers. Uh, Go after money instead. Uh, The feeling is that the powers interfere with enlightenment in the sense that in order to utilize a power, let's say, for example, you develop the ability to make parking meters... Uh, disappear. So that if you came up to one and you're going to park your car next to it, you could just make it go away. And uh, you wouldn't get a ticket. It's probably easier to put a quarter in. That would be the wisdom on the subject. But Now, the problem with powers is not that they're bad. Of course, there's the school of thought that says the usage of all mystical and occult powers is bad. I find that that thought is usually propounded by people who don't have any powers. It's kind of a sour grapes attitude. The problem with the powers is not whether they're good or bad. They're neither. They're just powers, like the power to do anything, to walk, to write a book. The problem is that whenever you use one of the powers, you're using it. And from the point of view of enlightenment, or the way to enlightenment, in order to achieve enlightenment, of course, we have to dissolve the ego, the sense of self. And if there's a sense of self present, it interferes with enlightenment. So in order to cultivate the powers, in other words, if you're going to set out on a serious journey, which many people have, to develop mystical powers, to impress your friends and do other things to your enemies, uh, if that's what you want to do, The difficulty with it is that while you were engaging in the development of those powers, you will not be moving towards enlightenment. Now, naturally, if you're not interested in enlightenment, you can develop all the powers you want. It really doesn't matter and have a ball. But there's a sequence to enlightenment. Enlightenment is not something that just happens at random. 
And if you understand that sequence, the whole process becomes somewhat cloudier. Normally, if you have not attained liberation in a previous lifetime, the best time to begin the study is around age probably 17 through 19. If you're younger than that, usually an individual will not be serious enough. Sometimes we see a great deal of spiritual energy manifested in young children uh, between the ages of maybe 5 and 12. They're, they seem to be quite attuned. They might be interested in meditation, self-discovery, things like that. Some of them even have very good past life recall. They can remember their past lives, particularly uh, at age 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, before the ego becomes functional. When the ego becomes very functional, it tends to block those memories. But children don't know that they shouldn't think that way. So very often they recall quite well. But usually, of course, when adolescence comes along, and the hormones have their way, uh, the attention wanders. And for that period of age 12 to 19, uh, adolescence, terrible time in one's life, uh, regardless of what people who try and remember how it was say. It's, it's interesting that people, when they get older, they always remember that that was the best part of their life. Illusion is a funny thing. But in any case, during that period of time, most people have their attention in other areas, which is exactly correct and proper. Naturally, if you're dealing with an individual who has, was very advanced in a past lifetime, sometimes they show signs very early on, and they continue to exhibit them throughout their life. But for most individuals, even if they have had uh, incarnations where they've meditated and practiced various forms of self-discovery, they tend to lose it around that time. The subtle body isn't really tenacious enough. The subtle body develops just as the physical body does. And in the primary years, the subtle physical body is very soft, very uh, luminescent. Young children have this glow about them. But it has to go through this embryonic journey which it does in those years from about, as I said, 12 to about 19, where it solidifies and the fibers become stronger. The subtle physical body is made up of fibers of light. And when those fibers are stronger, then one can begin the journey to enlightenment. The journey to enlightenment is very arduous. It's, it's fun, certainly, and it's a happy journey. But it takes a great deal of temerity of strength. Not necessarily physical strength, but an inner strength, the determination, uh, the ability to believe. So most people start, uh, if they were fairly advanced in another lifetime, uh, usually around age 17 to 19. You'll notice that most uh, men who attain enlightenment usually do so between the ages of 30 and 33 for some unknown reason. But statistically, that's true. Uh, as you know, very few women have attained enlightenment. And that's an unfortunate fact, which we've discussed before. And hopefully, this is the age of women, and that will be ending. And there are many reasons for it, which we need not go into this evening. So. The ideal time to start, then, is around age 17 to 19. 
because a subtle physical body is in superb condition. It's similar to being an athlete. While it's possible to become a great athlete at any age, I suppose, for most individuals there has to be a training process. And the body will reach a peak at a certain time, but even for it to reach that peak, there has to be conditioning at a certain age. And this doesn't mean that if you didn't start to meditate at that time, that you can't attain enlightenment in this life. You can, but it will be more difficult. Because after that age, it seems that the ages from 19 to 25 are critical years. In those years, a great deal of conditioning, mental conditioning, uh, occurs to an individual. And after that time, one has to erase that conditioning. It continues on, but those are very powerful years in an individual's life. <clears throat> what I'm suggesting is that there's, there are sequences in your life. There's a marvelous book uh, written by Gail Shealy, Passages, a while back, that suggested that there are time periods in our life where we're capable of doing uh, certain things that we really can't do as well at other times of our life. And if we understand those passages, it's much easier to deal with life. It's sort of the Tao of, of living. And in the same sense, uh, while she was discussing more perhaps psychological phenomena, it's also true in, in the inner sense. There's a sequence to enlightenment. It doesn't just happen. There's a chemistry that's extremely precise. So, of course, in Tibet, uh, in the very large monasteries, but even more importantly in the, the caves above 10,000 feet, uh, where most of the really advanced teachers were, they would normally begin to work with individuals at around that age. While many young children uh, were brought into the monastery, that was more for educational uh, purposes. And while they may have studied the scriptures and become very learned, that didn't mean that they were at all enlightened. So the sequence of enlightenment, then, is important. Now, if I can move aside from this ideal situation in which a person begins to meditate at 17, 18, or 19, finds a teacher who's enlightened and begins the journey and continues on that journey uh, throughout the course of their life, uh, if I can digress for a moment, that doesn't happen to too many people. In most cases, you begin whenever you do. And there's a sequence, though, that's operable for each of you. That is to say, when you first encounter meditation, and even more importantly, if and when you in a given lifetime, find an enlightened teacher and begin to study with them. From that moment forward, a sequence opens to you. It's kind of like going to medical school. You have to take your courses in a certain sequence. If you don't, it, it upsets the balance. You don't have forever. Some people are under the idea, of course, that you have all the time in the world. And in a sense, we all do, since we are the world and there is no time. But in a sense, we don't. Karma is operable in all situations in the relative world. Karma, as you know, is the law of cause and effect. Uh, the law of cause and effect means, of course, that for every action there's a, a reaction of a type. But the law of karma is much deeper than that, and of course that's part of the secret oral teachings of Tibet. And that is that 
most karma is not physical. The sense that karma means that uh, I was kind to somebody and someone will be kind to me is a very limited understanding of karma. Or that uh, for five lives I was a kind person and now in this life I'll be wealthy. You see, this is a very limited understanding of karma. Karma has to do with planes of attention. Now we move into the secret teachings. The idea is that each one of us is watching a movie, a film of some type. And that film that we're watching, which may be happy, sad, pleasant, unpleasant, whatever, the reason we're watching it is because of what we've done. Not done so much with action. Action is a very low physical reflection of awareness. But rather the way that we've thought. There are many fields of attention, planes of consciousness, the way you see things. We're in a particular field of attention because of how we think. A person who thinks happy thoughts, progressive thoughts, thoughts of aiding others, of uh, observing the beauty of life, things like that, moves into a higher level of attention. They're in a more pleasant state of awareness. A person who's angry, frustrated, jealous, uh, filled with a lot of different desires, and doesn't come to the center of life, moves into a very low level of attention. Think of the levels of attention just as uh, the ocean. The ocean has many different levels. Uh, you go down to 50 fathoms, the current runs one way. Another 50 fathoms, it runs another way, and so on. And as you know, different types of fish and creatures live in the different levels, and there's a different amount of light present. And for the first 50 fathoms, there's more light, then there's less and less and less. So existence is an ocean. It's an ocean of consciousness. And we oscillate, usually within a given lifetime, within a certain range. So a person will be born, depending upon their karmic patterns, with a certain potentiality and possibility. That is to say, they'll be born within a certain level of that giant cosmic ocean, maybe a thousand fathoms down then within a given lifetime, they will oscillate. So maybe they're a thousand fathoms down, but maybe on their good days they'll go up twenty fathoms and higher, on their bad days they'll go down twenty fathoms lower. The idea is that through a very, very long process called reincarnation, we cycle slightly higher and slightly higher in each lifetime. Sometimes we go backwards, sometimes we go forward. But there is movement, there is a progression. And eventually, after many, many lifetimes, we move into higher levels of attention, of awareness. Without looking so much at the karmic patterns of rebirth at the moment, but rather considering a given lifetime, then I would suggest that your awareness is karma. How you feel generates your level of attention. Simple example. You wake up, you're in a bad mood. You get angry. When you get angry, you're going to lose your ability to discriminate. When you lose your ability to discriminate, you forget the lessons of experience. So what you're going to do is smack your toe on a door, catch your coat in the car door when you close it. The day will progress from that point and get rapidly worse. The reason these things are happening is because you're not in a very high level of attention. If you're in a high level of attention, there's a flow to whatever you do. You can perceive what will be before it is, before it manifests in the physical. And so you can choose your realities. You don't have to simply allow life to happen to you. You can happen to life. 
It's a different way of doing it, more advanced operating system. So then what determines that, what determines everything, is your level of attention, your awareness. The more conscious you are, not simply conscious in the sense that I see uh, more colors, I'm more aware of what's physically going on, I can hear more sounds, not simply conscious in the sensory modalities, but conscious in the sense of being conscious of consciousness, of these different planes of attention. This allows us to do a kind of a mental judo and step beyond harm's way. Harm denoted as negative feelings, unhappiness, uh, the loss of awareness. What I'm suggesting is that most people simply go through life and they're not particularly aware of what's happening to them or why. They move from day to day, from year to year, from lifetime to lifetime, shuffled back and forth by the winds of karma. They feel that they're making choices in their lives that cause destiny to move in certain ways. But I would suggest that they have no control of their lives whatsoever. That all their cho choices are really made for them. In other words, it doesn't seem to me that you have a lot of choice if you go to a school where they give you a choice of whether you want to meet in Mr. Brown's home room or Miss Green's home room, and both are tyrants. So you have the choice of tyrant A or the choice of tyrant B. This, to me, is not a heck of a lot of choice. So if you were born in a country that's very poor, and that's all there is is poverty, you have the choice to live in the southern part of the country and be poor or the northern part and be poor. And this is how life is for most people. Life is a series of dreams. And you can consciously choose which dream you are experiencing. This is the Tibetan rebirth process. The idea is that you don't have a personality or a self. The only self you have is the one that you think you have. As they say in the comic strip Pogo, uh, we have met the enemy and it am us. All heavens and hells are created within ourselves. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is a map, a triptych, a triple-A guide to existence. It doesn't tell you how to get anywhere, since essentially the idea is there's nowhere to go. Rather, it points out things of interest along the way and tells you how not to get into trouble in certain countries where the water is drinkable, where it's not drinkable. It's a map to existence. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is thought by many to be a very archaic book that describes what happens to you after you die. The idea is that at the time of death, the soul leaves the body and passes through an intermediate state which ceases to exist upon rebirth into a physical body. The soul passes through a series of etheric worlds, non-physical worlds. In each of these worlds, 
you will see visions, have experiences, quite unlike the experiences and visions you have in the physical world. A thought behind it all is that it is possible to attain enlightenment not only while you were in the physical body, but during this intermediate passage. And if you can recognize what they call the clear light of reality, the dharmakaya, at any point in this process, liberation will ensue. This is the popular understanding of the book. Naturally, in many cases, they feel, of course, that the soul of a departed one doesn't leave the earth right away, but stays. It has a certain tie after death and is drawn to stay in the world for a little while and visits familiar places. It's, it travels a little bit. But eventually it is pulled on into other levels of attention, into other planes of existence, other dimensions. And then, of course, eventually, after a period of time, resting in the subtle physical worlds of light and luminosity, or passing through the hell worlds or whatever it may be doing, the soul will be drawn back. It has a, there's a, still a propensity to be drawn back to physical rebirth. It wants more experience, so it, it comes back, it's attracted back. The real use of the book, though, the esoteric use of the book and the secret teachings, has nothing to do with that at all. The idea that death changes anything is laughed at by the enlightened teachers. This is death. Life is the bardo. The bardo is not something that you experience after death. It's that too. Everything that's present after death is present now. All of the dimensions, worlds, planes of existence, and of course nirvana exist now. And one does not have to wait for death to die and to experience the alternate realities or to grow towards enlightenment, to be absorbed in nirvana. All of that is now, since there is no time and there is no dimension. These are just movies that people are watching. So the Tibetan Book of the Dead is really not correctly named. Rather, it's a book of, of the living or a book of life. It's a book that teaches you about inner states of awareness. Now, in its current form, the best translation, of course, being <clears throat> the Evans-Wentz translation, in my opinion, it's, it's incomprehensible to most people. You can't make heads or tails out of it. But what the book does, or, of course, the same teachings, which are received through a teacher, is it gives you a map for dealing with existence. And the map is, is simple. The theme of the map is be neither attracted nor repulsed. That you right now are a voyager. You are passing through a series of experiences. You have amnesia. You're not who you think you are. And in your life and in your death and in your succeeding rebirths and deaths, you will be presented with a series of visions. And if you can recognize that these are only visions, if you can remember for a moment that you're watching a movie, then you are able to extricate yourself from the movie. You can watch the movie if you like. You can wander the empty streets. Or if you reach enlightenment, you can go to the empty theaters and avoid the crowded streets. So to take charge of destiny means to play a very convoluted chess game on multiple levels of consciousness and existence.
the Tibetan rebirth process involves the choosing of a caretaker personality. Now, as you know, the personality in most cases is formed early on in life. The initial experiences that we have when our, with our parents, particularly in the teaching of language, language being a set of loaded dice, our experiences in the world with friends, family, and so on, and the propensities of the soul and karmas cause us to create a personality, a sense of self. I'm an individual. I'm special. I'm different from Bob because I like the color red and he likes the color blue. Uh, I'm different from Jim because uh, I'm a woman and he's a man. We, ha we begin with a very basic sense of self, which is determined by likes and dislikes, by a sense of sex and what that means, and by what we're taught we are. You're taught that you're a human being. Human beings don't fly, so therefore you can't fly. So we're taught a lot of things, but also just in the process of, of living, we develop this thing we call a personality. And most people are stuck with the same personality all their lives. In the process of self-discovery, it's not only possible but necessary to dissolve your personality. The idea is that through a series of, let's say, a thousand lifetimes, you would go through a thousand personality structures. Each personality structure would be slightly more advanced than the preceding personality structure. Each would be more fluid. As you're moving from a hundred fathoms uh, upward, there'll be more light. And if in each lifetime you're going up a little higher, there'll be more light. The soul progresses, it grows spiritually as it moves towards enlightenment. But the secret teachings of, in, of the oral tradition suggest that it's possible to take the thousand lifetimes it would have taken to become conscious of consciousness and to compress it into one lifetime. And with the aid of the benign forces and God and <clears throat> an enlightened teacher, and with proper motivation and proper evolution, you can do that. So therefore, what you will do is create a series of personalities. This is where it gets fun. It's kind of like choosing lots of different outfits to wear. And one night you could uh, wear Western clothes, one night you could wear a, a sari, one night you could uh, wear safari gear. You don't have to be limited and just always dress the same way. As we go within the self, we discover that all the voices of our past lives are, are still uh, there. They still exist. As we peel ourselves, which is a process very much like <clears throat> peeling an onion, it's very often compared to that, we discover that there are many selves within the self. We think of ourselves as an individual self. I'm a person. <clears throat> But everyone you've always been is in there somewhere. And the voices grow louder as we advance. Particularly if you've had a series of advanced incarnations, if you've perhaps been a monk in one lifetime, uh, a seeker, a sadhu, whatever. You meditated and so on. These are stronger selves. And you will find, as you progress, that these selves will begin to come out. You're going to have little coming out parties for them. Invite your friends, things like that. 
So when your Japanese lifetime is coming out, you see, you can all drink sake that night. <laughs> Have a little bash. When the Tibetan life is coming out, of course, you can all go up into the hills for a while. Or go to the graveyard. <laughs> so the selves come out. And we see that we're not one self. It's fascinating. Jung was moving a little bit in this direction in his research with his archetypes, although he just scratched the surface. We are many, many selves. We're not just a finite being. These selves don't necessarily speak in words. It's not like a channeling or bringing some force through you. But they are you. You just become more conscious that you're much more complex than you realized. So it's necessary then to design new personalities as you progress. Of course, what makes this possible is the Kundalini. The Kundalini is the force, the energy, the power that dissolves or raises you above the cycle that you're in now. That is to say, in this lifetime, right now you have a specific destiny. It's all worked out. There's not a thing you can do about it. You're destined to die at a certain time. You're destined to be healthy certain days, to be ill certain days, to make a certain amount of money, to have certain associations and friendships. You may think you have free choice. But your choices are really very limited. They're limited by your level of awareness. If you can change awareness radically, then you change your destiny. If you're at 150 fathoms, no matter where you go, there'll only be a certain amount of light and a certain species of fish, you see? If you can go up 50 fathoms, everything changes. More importantly, not only does everything change around you, but what really changes is you change. You become a different self. While it's the same underlying reality, the same you is present in all things, a more evolved you comes out, a more aware you. So it's as if you were born with a body that simply couldn't compete athletically, and suddenly you changed and you woke up the next day, and you were set to be an Olympic athlete. The self changes even more radically in this process. The way that, of course, is done is by generating enough kundalini. Kundalini, of course, is generated through cultivating humility, purity, through meditation, selfless giving, and by studying with an advanced teacher on a personal level, who is able to generate tremendous fields of kundalini through your being and to aid you in awakening and then guiding your kundalini. That's the tricky part, of course. To take you through uh, these many births and deaths in one lifetime and to teach you about the other fields of attention. I first became interested in Tibet uh, many years ago. I found myself uh, reading Tibet Tibetan uh, sacred texts. and I didn't understand a word of it to be honest with you, uh, when I was younger, 60 or 70, uh, I was about 12, I found myself just drawn to these books, and I kept reading them, and I don't know if I understand them today, but after meditating for a number of years, I began to recall uh, my past lives. I don't know if recall is the right word in a sense because that almost implies that you were looking for something and I was just meditating. 
but the selves reassert themselves. It's not so much a question of where you were when. It's not really like looking through a scrapbook or a photo album. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes there are images you can see, because all of it still exists somewhere. But rather those selves, as I went through the enlightenment process, began to reemerge and uh, and assert themselves in a way. Nirvana seems cold to most people, the idea of it. The word God-realization works for a lot of people in the West. It sounds more positive somehow. Even samadhi has a warmer sound to it than nirvana. I think it's the N. <laughs> At the, the, the beginning of the word. Has a, N's are much colder than G's or S's, I think. God-realization, of course, you get a G-R combination. But no, many people uh, don't explore the pathway to nirvana because they don't like the way the word sounds. It's true. It's true. I watch. Words make a difference. If we called it Wonderful Land, they'd be signing up in droves. But nirvana is just this idea of emptiness, nothingness. A desert without cactus and sand. No rocks, no Gila monsters, no heat, no cold, no spirits, no wind. Not much of a desert, if you ask me. Sort of an undesert. Nirvana's not like that. Nirvana's not like anything you've ever known or experienced. Because it can't be known or experienced. The I can't say the end product of self-discovery is nirvana, because that would imply that there was a beginning and an ending. And there isn't really. In other words, is there life after nirvana? No. Nor is there death. Upon being absorbed in nirvana, there will be no memory of anything else. Not because you'll forget, not even because you'll go away. Perhaps I can present an alternate view, the warm side of nirvana, this is southern nirvana. <laughs> Imagine that you can see a certain amount of light okay, through the retina of your eye. And let's say that light is ecstasy. Let's say that there's a beautiful, wondrous light, more wonderful uh, than anything. And to see that light is to experience ecstasy, joy beyond comprehension. And let's say that in our, our life, occasionally, we get a glimpse of that light when we do something noble for someone else, if we have a mystical experience of some type where we go beyond the body and experience that ecstasy, even in the dream yoga, 
if uh, we use the etheric double and go beyond the confines of the physical, even into the etheric planes. It's very ecstatic. But the kind of ecstasy that we experience in this world, or in the subtle physical worlds, the astral worlds, in any worlds, is limited. But if you could imagine going into the sun, or perhaps a sun a thousand billion times brighter than the sun that we see, and if you could go right into it, and if that light was ecstasy, unfathomable, endless, there would be so much of it that you would forget after a while that you were even seeing it. You would be so dazzled by its splendor that all the pain of life would go away. That ecstasy would not be a narcotic ecstasy in the sense that it's simply a forgetting but rather your awareness would merge with that endless vortex of light, which is existence itself. In other words, completion would be so complete that it would go beyond itself. This is southern nirvana. And northern nirvana, of course, is different. It snows all the time. It's, it's so white that you can't tell if it's white anymore. It's absolute silence and stillness. But not a sense of silence as absence, but a silence that's filled with sound, kind of like white noise. So many sounds are present that you can't distinguish them. If we could trace all of life back to a, a primeval source, to its essence, which is God. And if God is endless and infinite and assumes all forms, yet remains formless, that's nirvana. But still, you see, we have an idea. We always have ideas of God or nirvana or truth or enlightenment. And these ideas will go away in nirvana because the suffusion is so complete and intense that nothing can be remembered. For example, at the border of nirvana, okay, there's a, there's a gate, there's a crossing. And when you reach the border of nirvana, at that point, someone will walk up to you and inform you that if you enter into nirvana, everything that you've ever loved will be lost. You will be alone there will be the most terrible aloneness that you can imagine. You will be alienated from everything, including yourself, forever. A sense of drifting in a cold, irresolute space, forever. And at that moment, O nobly born, all of the images from all of your lives will come forward, not necessarily individually, but as feelings, and they will demand your attention. They will say, don't cross over there. You will lose us, and you will be sorrowful and empty and void. Now, if you listen to what that individual tells you, what that fellow tells you at the border, of course, then you won't cross over. You'll 
go back to all of the things that you've always loved and all of the things that have bound you and limited you. Also, you'll have both because in the world of duality you have the pairs of opposites. Now, if you listen to me, which no one does, fortunately, I would suggest that it's not like that at all, that when that fellow comes up to you and presents that information, you'll say, listen, uh, I, several lifetimes ago I went to one of Rama's talks, and you know, while he very rarely says anything of any value whatsoever, there was one point he made, which I put on a 3 by 5 file card, which I happen to have in my back pocket, and I was going to review it when I ran into you, because he said I'd run into you. I didn't necessarily believe him at the time, but now that it's actually happened, I just happen to have this file card tucked away here, and I'd like to examine it for a moment, if you don't mind. And of course, he'll say, well, listen, you really don't have time. I mean, the world's a turning, uh, existence is manifesting, and uh, but he said, no, just, 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 just a minute. Just a minute. I mean, it's my death. I'll do it the way I want. So then you'll take out your kind of faded 3x5, in a few lifetimes I've got my 3x5 file card. Okay, but if you got a plastic one, as we all know, plastic is forever. <laughs> take this plastic 3x5 file card, which you had laser engraved. Okay. And it says, don't listen. <laughs> This is, in, in the Odyssey, of course, we see Odysseus, he's going by the island uh, with all the sirens on it, and they're all singing and luring men to their death on the rocks. They had a lot of sexual hang-ups in those days. But anyway, we'll let that go by. So what Odysseus did, of course, was he sealed up his ears with wax, and he didn't listen to what they had to say. No, that wasn't Odysseus. Who was that? That was his friend. No, he was just tied to the mast, and he listened. But all the guys on the ship didn't get to listen. They put the, the wax in their ears, and they kept rowing. That's what we call class distinction. <laughs> Odysseus got to listen, but not as friend. They, no, because they were of lower births. See, it's always that way. The upper class gets everything. What can you do? They had a terrible class structure system in Tibet. Awful. I mean, don't believe that Tibet is some wonderful paradise. It's cold. And a terrible, terrible system there, particularly regarding women. Awful. Suppression. That isn't necessarily how a few of the yogis felt. But by and large, you know, people in the West sometimes they have these marvelous visions of India and Tibet, and they just assume that there are all these sadhus walking around and everybody's breathing enlightenment. Forget it. Certainly not. There have been wondrous luminous beings who live there. And in the Himalayas, of course, there are many non-physical beings that exist that are very advanced. Babaji and, you know, others. But, but don't look at it through rose-colored glasses. Anyway, when you get to the border of Nirvana and you take out your little plastic card, hopefully it'll be in the right language. Don't listen, because that's not what it's like. In other words, when you're sitting there in meditation someday, and you're just on the edge of moving into samadhi, that's, that's the difficult time. That's when most people lose it, if you get to that point to begin with.
Because all of your attachments and aversions, this is what the Tibetan Book of the Dead is for, will present themselves to you. And in the Book of the Dead, of course, it explains that when this happens, don't run away from anything you see, don't run towards it. Be neutral. Just observe. Be neither attracted nor repulsed. Because otherwise you'll get pulled into another plane of consciousness. As opposed to passing beyond them all or through them all. Because in nirvana, we speak of it as if it's a physical thing. Of course it is and it isn't. It's not like that. It's not empty or cold or barren. You don't remember. The ecstasy and the completion of absorption in God is so fantastic that you can't possibly have lost anything because all of the things that you've always loved and always experienced came forth from there and exist there and are always there. In other words, they say that this world and all worlds, everything other than nirvana is the samsara. Okay, it's, it's the illusory worlds, the shadow planes. And then there's nirvana. But that's not true. I mean, it is and it isn't, like all good things. Nirvana and samsara are one. This is nirvana. This is Eastern nirvana. This is nirvana without realizing where you are. This is everyone sitting in the theater watching the movie, not realizing that there's more than the particular movie that they're watching. They're endless movies. You can watch one after another. You can watch them all simultaneously. Or you can just go walking in the streets for a while or in the fields. You can become non-existence. You can become existence. Existence is a playground when you're enlightened. You play with it. It's all uh, yourself. You love everything. You have an amorous relationship with eternity. But to reach that point, to cross over the border is, of course, what the teachings are for. They aid you and guide you in preparing you as you have to let go of your idea of self, your frustrations, your fears, all the things that inhibit you. It's, it's really just uh, the uh, Socratic parable, you know, the Platonic parable of the the cave is the same thing. That there's the cave and all of humanity is in it and there's this terribly bright light at the other end and everybody's afraid of it. But what you have to do is just walk into it. Walk into the light. And then you find that it doesn't burn. And it's not particularly frightening. It's yourself. It's your own body. It was just an idea that told you that there was anything else because that's all there ever was. It was eternity. Timeless, infinite eternity. And eternity manifests itself in endless ways, on endless planes of existence that they call lokas, other dimensions. Worlds within worlds, within an atom, there can be a billion kingdoms. Endless. But all of them are bound by the cycle of birth and death. They all come into being for a while and then vanish. That's mutability. And transmigration is the process of shifting awareness within all of that. But it is possible to go beyond that, which doesn't mean that you won't be passing through it, but it will not affect you. That's the essence of the secret teachings. And to do that, one follows the whatever path you prefer. The short path, of course, is the path. It's not actually shorter. It's just that you do it faster. 
But since there's no time, there's no sense of fast or slow. It's rather what's correct for yourself. And that's passing through thousands of incarnations or lifetimes in one. The essential principle, the guiding principle to remember in all of this is love. You see, a better name for nirvana might be endless love. Love not even in the sense that we see it if we're watching the romantic movie, but love in a sense of no absence. So if you want to, you can view what will eventually happen, I suppose, at enlightenment as a final completion. But that doesn't imply an end to existence, it just is a change in direction. After enlightenment, that doesn't mean you don't reincarnate. You know, there's, there's a myth that many people feel that once they attain enlightenment, well, why should I do that? I won't live anymore. That's not true. You don't live now. There is no after enlightenment. There's only enlightenment. In the enlightened states of a consciousness, when you've reached that point after much meditation and so on, then you're just at the beginning again. But in a different way, I suppose. Life streams through you constantly, every aspect of it. You can't die at that point. Oh, the body comes and goes. You know, I received a letter the other day. It's kind of funny. Uh, I get mail from people who have come to meditations, or they just see the ads sometimes and get interesting things, letters from people asking them to help you. They want to be helped so they can sleep at night. And I got one of those today. And I know quite what I'm supposed to do. I'll think of something. Uh, and, you know, I take all my mail very seriously. Um, but I receive, sometimes, of course, you, you receive nasty mail from people who, it's amazing, they've never met you, but they've decided they don't like you. And this is one character who writes me occasionally. And uh, I love his audacity. He wrote me a letter informing me that truly enlightened people never die, their bodies. See? And he was writing me and every other spiritual teacher he could think of. You know, it was one of these things where they tell you who the other letters are going to, uh, informing us that unless we were at the point of physical immortality, that it was impossible to be enlightened. See? So I sort of read it, took it in, you know. Because it's always good to consider anything anybody says, because it might be true, you never know. And one should never assume anything. So I think it's worth listening to what anyone says, even if it seems ridiculous on the surface, there may be some truth in there to learn from. And the truth was that he didn't know what he's talking about. So <laughs> Now, he does have a point in that it is possible, there is a siddha by which you can preserve the body. But that has nothing to do with enlightenment. Enlightenment has nothing to do with the physical body particularly. But you can do that. There is a power whereby you can uh, preserve the body. There are people in the Himalayas who are thousands of years old. But that's just a power, you see. It would seem to me that would suggest 
the tremendous aversion to the experience of death. Someone who wants to keep the body going, in other words. It's sort of, why? I mean, it's not that great here. <laughs> you see, enlightenment doesn't have anything to do with the body, particularly. Naturally, after enlightenment, your body changes tremendously. It's, it's very molecular structure changes just because the kundalini is always streaming through you. Enlightenment is nothing. Enlightenment means exactly what it says. It means that you are always in light. It doesn't mean that you are affixed to any particular level of consciousness. So in other words, there are very high states of awareness, like the Turiya con consciousness, which is a superconscious state of samadhi, that if you're a very powerful meditator, you've meditated for a long time and you know eaten the right foods and stuff like that, uh, you can go into this consciousness if you've let go of all of your attachments and you know, things like that. Let go of your pet poodle, Sam, <laughs> who you had a multi-incarnation relationship with. <laughs> and you can go into this wonderful you know, Sahaja Samadhi. See? But to be fixated on Sahaja Samadhi is to be fixated. To be fixated on the idea of being not fixated is fixation, too. That's why all these ideas and definitions about enlightenment become silly. Because that's all they are. Enlightenment is absorption, not only in some nebulous state of awareness, but in everything. It's the ability to talk to a four-year-old and have a comprehensive conversation about whatever. It's the ability to meditate and dissolve in light and be absorbed in nirvana. And the self dissolves, life dissolves, time goes away, the world goes away, and become perpetual being without any sense of being perpetual being. And then a few minutes later to be picking up a phone and talking to someone. In other words, you're not fixated in any state of consciousness. You've become consciousness itself. All of its aspects manifest through you. There's no sense of self, unless there's a sense of self sometimes, which does not preclude enlightenment. That's just another passing mirage. The difference is you're neither attracted nor repulsed. True, the being has become completely refined. There's no longer uh, hatred or fear or any of those things. Those things all went away long, long before. You went through the shifting of thousands of selves, countless lifetimes, and within lifetimes. But finally, it just simply means you can be funny. Because there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. The only people who aren't funny are people who are afraid. They're afraid of what others think of them, what others will write about them, what others will read about them, you see? What they themselves will think of themselves. And you can't really be funny if you, if you think about those things. You only become funny when you have a complete reverence for life. And you realize that life is uh, ecstasy, limitless ecstasy. And then, since there's no attraction or aversion, you can open yourself up to everything. In other words, I don't think it's possible to be funny if there's anything you still want or anything that you're afraid of. Your humor will be incomplete. I'm using humor in a slightly different sense than it's usually used. Humor very often is derived at the 
painful expense of another. We laugh at someone's misfortune. That's not what I mean. But as long as there's still attraction or aversion, you can't be funny. In other words, it's only when you realize that you are mortal and yet immortal simultaneously that you begin to realize the beautiful incongruities of existence aren't incongruous at all, but rather perfect. Now, I realize this is a very refined discussion on matters of probably no interest to anyone. But it's nice to be funny, particularly not in the sense of making people laugh, but as you pass through your journey, you see, to or from enlightenment or wherever you happen to be in between. There's a sense of the, the joyous humorousness of existence. Uh, Self-discovery is not, as some would have us think, this heavy, awesome, uh, moral process where everyone sits around and frowns. As you progress towards enlightenment, and of course, after enlightenment, you, you become funny. Serious, of course. But being serious, one can still be humorous and light because you're living in, in a state of infinite awareness with infinite possibilities all the time. Nirvana, in other words, I'm suggesting is very funny. It's not sin sincere, particularly. It's rather frivolous, actually. Well, why not? Why should it be the way you want it to be? Unhappy, miserable, and cold. <laughs> or trapped in, in uh, etheric colors and robes. Why? It's beyond anything. But the realization, what I'm suggesting about humor here, is that if you were to sit down and be absorbed in nirvana, okay, boom, gone and experience the limitless ecstasy of existence. And this is just a silly way of talking because there's no way to describe it. I mean, as soon as you get into this, you get into persona and duality and all this nonsense. And then find yourself back here again. That's pretty funny. <laughs> and having to worry about the heat guy coming out or uh, you know, the, the electricity goes off or after you've just been infinite, endless reality and you find yourself... Here, and true, I mean, it's not exactly the same. Everything moves and changes. And there's nothing stable, particularly yourself. But there is some sense of duality, since that's not contrary to nirvana. That's just another idea. These are the secret teachings. <laughs> now you understand why they kept them secret. No one take them seriously. In other words, the secret teachings suggest that everything they tell you on the way up is not untrue, but it's not necessarily so. All the things that the spiritual teachers taught you to get to the top were good for you to hear at the time. But once you get up a ways, it all changes. The rules, there are no rules anymore. Anything is possible and usually occurs. because you go beyond mind and form. And mind and form dictate rules and regulations and commandments and do's and don'ts. But it just doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with God, realization. But yet it's very necessary to tell that to beginners because they have to progress, and it does help. Because without that, they won't get to the point where they can forget it. It seems silly, I know. 
It is, but that's how it works. It's not logical self-realization. If it was, everybody would be self-realized, because everybody's logical. It defies everything that you can imagine, and yet it incorporates it. In other words, there are no opposites. That's just what your mind says. There are no complements. That's what your mind says. Nothing is or is not unless you happen to think it's so. That's what Shakespeare said. And he knew. So you go beyond all that. But once you're beyond all that, you aren't beyond it. You can still be in it, since it, beyond was just another idea. That's why you have to meditate, because otherwise you drive yourself crazy thinking like this. <laughs> I think that's part of it. What they do is they teach you on the way up all these convoluted ways of thinking about reality and immortality, and it finally gets to you, and you can't stand it. And you have to stop your thoughts just to get away from it. <laughs> And that, of course, causes enlightenment. <laughs> now, if you're trying to aid people in the process of self-discovery, what you have to do is confound them with so many concepts that are contradictory, yet each makes complete sense in its own right, that begins to drive them absolutely nuts. And the only way they'll find any peace of mind is if they meditate deeply. That's the job of a spiritual teacher. To show you there's absolutely no way out except the way in. You see, that's the essence of the secret teachings. That there is no essence and there are no teachings. <laughs> it's not such a bad job. It has its moments. Many Tibetan masters were then, I suppose, what we would call non-traditional. Of course, from their point of view, they weren't non-traditional since they didn't realize there was a tradition, because they didn't believe in tradition. And of course, there are those who are extremely traditional, who propound tradition, which is not antithetical to Dharma, since that's Dharma in another form. But the non-traditional teachers, in other words, were Tibetan teachers who smoked a cigar, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, you go see the enlightened teacher and he's... Havana's finest, that sort of thing. And Havana hadn't even been discovered yet. That's when you knew you had a powerful teacher. And then, of course, there were some Tibetan teachers uh, who were quite famous for their... Uh, They got around, <laughs> which caused great consternation to some, because according, of course, to traditional theory, uh, that's not the sort of thing that spiritually minded people do. But since no one ever told them that, <laughs> after they attained enlightenment, what was the difference? In other words, there's no prescribed way to attain enlightenment, except the ways they prescribe. And if you follow them, they work to a point. But then you'll reach a point where they won't work anymore, 
because they'll take you to a certain point, but then you can't go beyond the point. Or even if you get to the point, it's still a point. And if it's a point, it's in the samsara because it's in the relative worlds and planes of opposites. <laughs> and there's no point to that at all. Because <laughs> that's not liberation, it's a point. So how do you get beyond the point, since that's another point? And if you just go towards no point, then that's the point of no point. You see? It's discouraging. It's enough to make you want to cry. Well, that's the secret teachings. That's, uh, it's not what you know, it's who. It's true. You don't think so. That's true. That's why they're spiritual teachers. To confuse you with the facts. Because the way you bring a person to those higher levels of attention is a, is a very refined art, is what I'm suggesting. And that it involves so many things, most of which are non-physical. In other words, when you work with a student, when I work with a student, um, we may be having a conversation, we may be in a lecture situation, off in the desert. But almost all of what you're doing as a teacher is nothing that you say. It's all done with fields of energy that you project at specific times through other levels of attention that cause that person to spin, to change, to go through an inner revolution. The secret teachings, in other words, are that enlightenment is, I wouldn't say transmitted, because that implies that there's a giver, but let us say that it's transmitted. <laughs> Only because there's no other way to say it. But if we realize that we can say it but not mean it, it's okay to say it. See, that's how you get out. You see, that's the secret. You live without living. You die without dying. You breathe without breathing. You see? That's the idea, that in the physical level of attention, there's only that. But the physical is no longer physical when you go beyond it. It still is extant, but it changes because your understanding changes. Because after merging with the transcendental light or returning to the source, or whatever you'd like to call it, nothing is as it appears to be. The movie theaters are empty and the streets are full, you see. And the bridge is flowing, but the river is not. In other words, there's no way to describe it, which does not prohibit description. Yet there are defined ways to approach that realization so what I'm suggesting is that there are very traditional methods to attain liberation. There's Zen, Tibetan forms, yogic forms, many. And you follow those ways to a certain point. You have to go through purification and you know, basically become a saint. But saints aren't enlightened. They're on the verge. But then the next stage in spiritual evolution, which is sort of graduate school and self-discovery, has nothing to do with that. You have to do that to get to that point. You have to practice and play the piano and learn the scales and read music and become very good. But then you have to get to a point where you improvise. But you wouldn't get to that point without the discipline, which was half the fun. And all those transmutations of the self and the non-self and so on. Once you go through all those traditional forms, you reach a point where you have to then get creative with God-realization. And that's the essence of the secret teachings. And that there are certain things that can be said, very few, 
but even they will only be understood when you've reached that level of attention. And they won't even necessarily be said verbally, although they can be echoed that way. They will be said through uh, psychic communication. In other words, as a teacher, you just look at someone and you transmit to them what they need to know. Not simply a thought form, but you transmit an awareness level. You take them from 100 fathoms up to 25, like that. But you can only do that, of course, if it's the Dharma and if they're prepared. Because otherwise, if you take them up, they'll become fearful. They'll see so much light, they'll get scared and go back down. They'll be attracted back to the murky levels. So you have to prepare them gradually. It's kind of like training an athlete for those higher dissolutions, which happen faster and faster as you go further, since there's not as much time, since time goes away. But even still, you cannot take them over the border into nirvana. Or you can bring somebody into samadhi with a touch, if they're prepared, as Ramakrishna did with Vivekananda. But even so, for that person to retain that endless luminosity, to go beyond the grade B movie of existence, it's necessary to be able to deal with the guy you meet when you get to the border of nirvana, which is why you have the plastic card. So what a spiritual teacher does is they teach you things you don't need to know now. That's what the Tibetan secret teachings are. They're things you don't need to know, but might prove useful at some point. So you learn them anyway without realizing it. And those are the things that are transmitted from teacher to student. The teacher will teach you things that you won't even realize you're learning until someday you find when you get there, you didn't even know you had the plastic card, and you'll find yourself pulling it out of your wallet and it's in your hand. You have no idea where well, he put it there. You think he was going to wait for you to do it? You didn't even know that you needed it, you see? And it'll come up. But then again, what's a teacher anyway? Nothing. So nothing helps nothing into nothing, which is really something. Well, I didn't think it was such a bad line myself. I mean, what do you want for five bucks, right? In other words, my essential feeling as I meditate with you tonight and have this wonderful opportunity to waste time with you, since that's all we're doing together, which is very constructive, from my point of view anyway. There's no way, better way to spend your time, since there is no time. But is the realization that you're all very straight in your approach to self-discovery, which is admirable. I respect your sincerity and intensity and your intensive religious belief systems that one should be very serious in approaching self-discovery. And I agree in the sense that it's necessary to have total commitment or as much as you can muster to pass through the barter. That's true. And a reverence for life. But I disagree with your moralistic interpretations of life. You know, I'll be the first to pat you on the back and congratulate you. But that doesn't mean that I agree. I agree in the sense that maybe it's right for you at the moment. But for you to believe for a second that it's universal is ridiculous. In other words, you're not funny enough to get by the guy because you've got to make him laugh. Because he's just going to look and say, look, there's no way I'm letting you in there. 
And you say, well, did you hear the one about... Uh, <laughs> to get them laughing enough, you can just whoosh, right by into nirvana. So you have to begin to develop a repertoire of jokes. <laughs> but they can't be the usual ones because they know all those. So they have to be these subtle, multiple-plane spiritual jokes. Sort of things that Zen masters tell each other when they're asleep. <laughs> those are the secret teachings. There are a lot of jokes. Life has no meaning, you know, stuff like that. Ha, ha, ha. The guy climbs the mountain and the guru's up on top. And he finally gets there after searching, you know, one of those endless shaggy dog jokes. And he finally gets there after all these experiences and hundreds of lifetimes. And he gets to the illumined one. He says, oh, guru, what is the truth? And the guru says, uh, I forget. I have it. I know it'll come back. Well, what would you do if you were enlightened? I mean, if you're not already. Well, what would you do? What's left? But fast cars and... <laughs> films and... I mean, all that's left is life. I mean, now that you have it, you've done it and it's done and it's not done and changes all the time and yet it's always the same. You've got to fill up your time with something. Those are the secret teachings. They saw that there would be fast cars one day. I'm pushing my luck, I can tell. Try it again. Enlightenment, take three. Roll them. What I'm suggesting is that if you really think this whole process out too much, you will get stuck in it and that you need to stretch your awareness and consider the limitless possibilities of existence in all things and not be quite so narrow-minded in your self-discovery. To assume that there is a way to do it or not to do it is narrow-minded, in my opinion. While there may be a way for you at this time, you will change. If you don't, it means you're not progressing. But for others, there are many ways. So what one develops is compassion. And compassion allows us to accept everything. That's why there's always a tear in the eye of the Buddha, you see, that no one sees for the pain and suffering of others. Because without a requisite knowledge of that pain and suffering, you're mortal. You only become immortal when you feel the suffering of others and are one with it as you feel the joy of others and are one with it, yet step beyond both into immortality in itself and dissolve in eternity. And yet that tear remains even after enlightenment, even though it's invisible. It's only visible to those who know. And there's no way to will that. It will come when it will through the grace of God. And therefore, to be so absurd or knowledgeable, or even as a teacher, autocratic, to assume anything at almost any time, seems to me to forget that there's a tear in the eye of the Buddha, and we are all the Buddha, and we all have that tear, but we don't see it.
because we're so caught up in our illusions of self-realization that we forget that our self-realization and our enlightenment is of little importance, that what matters is the welfare of others, and that when you forget that, you forget what matters, and only when you remember that will enlightenment occur. When you become totally concerned with the welfare of others, without any sense of self-importance. It's only with that complete commitment and simplicity and humility and humor that is engendered by taking on the impossible task of selfless giving and doing it anyway, perfectly, without any sense of self, that real progress begins to occur. That's the preparation for the higher enlightenment. It is a noble endeavor. And all the rest is just the fun of the process, the craziness, the idiosyncrasies of the enlightenment process, uh, the development of the relationship with the teacher, uh, being in a spiritual community, going off on your own, mystical visions, developing powers. All these things are irrelevant, don't you understand? Enlightenment, in other words, is not the point. That's only the point for those who don't understand yet. And for them it's a complete point, and we must identify with it and congratulate them and agree with them, because they're right. But in the secret teachings, it has nothing to do with that. The secret teachings was the bodhisattva ideal. To live for others, for the welfare of all beings. That's enlightenment. Not some flashy state of luminosity. That's just another samsaric experience. Samadhi is another samsaric experience. Samadhi is not enlightenment. It's a jump into a larger ocean. Enlightenment is commitment to life in any form that life chooses. It's complete surrender to eternity without a sense of giving up, since it would have taken someone to give up. And if that someone is there, there's an acceptance of that self. It's accepting, embracing existence in every manifold aspect. That's enlightenment. It's not a fixated state of awareness, a samadhi, a an attainment. There's nothing to attain. Oh, sure, there are things to attain if that's what still interests you. But those are sort of adolescent notions in self-discovery. Eventually, you get down to the point where you've got to wash the dishes. You know, that's the fun in life. Is is being behind the scenes and doing things for others, for their welfare, being an instrument of that cause, which you can do at any evolutionary level. That is the secret teaching. And such a person is fit for enlightenment because they've understood that the secret of life is humility. In humility you disappear, you're absorbed in eternity. You can do lots of things for others and still be very egotistical. Better to be egotistical and do things for others than to do nothing at all, I suppose. But humility is folding in on yourself till you're gone. One can be humble and be active and in front of the world. It doesn't matter. It's the spirit, which no one has to know. You keep it tucked inside yourself, since it doesn't need to shine. That's perpetual enlightenment. It's perpetual humility. Living, of course, in the undifferentiated nirvana. No zip code. 